0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. Welcome from my indoors to your indoors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite. Happy to be with you today. They say that genetics is a jack of all trades profession because i guess genes affect multiple systems and therefore the field itself resists the existing silos of medical specialties this i thought of this because it occurred to me that my guest today david goldstein is emblematic of the whole idea of resisting silos david i was going through some of the highlights of work you've done and i'd say um, you can be characterized as having a serious interest and credentials in population genetics, translational genetics, public health, genetic education, bench research, genomic medicine. I mean, that, that's like six decent career options, right? I, I do uh,
1: I do sometimes feel like the best way uh, to describe my approach to work is as is, is a kind of geneticist for higher, uh, (laughs) where people have interests in genetics questions and so then pull me in and I find myself one month needing to try to understand something about the biology of epilepsy and another month trying to understand something about the biology of kidney disease and its many clinical forms. Uh, That can sometimes be pretty challenging uh, because I do like to try to understand uh, a little bit about what I'm working on in terms of the genetics. Uh, But it's also true that uh, there is really a pretty robust genetics toolkit now, which does allow us to apply these approaches in in a broad variety of
0: settings. I've always said it's the best and the worst thing about this field, but mostly the best because it, you, you, it, you're like a shark swimming, you keep learning or you die, right? You know, so that's what makes it really exciting.
1: I, I think flexibility is terrific. I mean, I think sometimes you do feel like you'd benefit from being able to make deeper dives in, in spe- in specific, and particular therapeutic areas. Uh, but it certainly is nice to be able to, you know, pivot quickly and apply these approaches where there are interesting problems.
0: Yeah. So I could I could see where it would have been pretty exciting for you when Columbia came about five years ago and offered you the chance to run something called an integrated and university wide institute for genetic medicine, the IGM. Although maybe that's not even broad enough. Maybe it should have been like genomic and genetic medicine and community outreach and science education and population genetics. I mean so so you've been there for five years. What's What's the mission of the IGM?
1: I think the mission probably in its simplest form, although as you've highlighted, we certainly have gotten involved in in a lot of different things, but in its simplest form, the mission really is to try to do germline genetic studies as well as we possibly can, and to bring those germline genetic studies uh, to as many of the clinical areas at Columbia as possible, And the way that we've approached that is really just try to think about where genetic approaches are, A, informative, and and B, clinically relevant and useful. And whenever those apply, we've tried to jump in and and do serious genetic studies uh, alongside partners uh, that know know something about the biology of those areas and also are at the interface uh, clinically. Uh, and that's meant that we've really applied these genetic approaches that we've been both developing and deploying um, really in a pretty remarkably broad range of of different therapeutic areas. and that that really is exactly what I was most excited about in setting up the institute. And so we've now run substantive studies you know all the way from uh, the prenatal setting uh, where we have uh, partnered, Uh, with um, folks in OBGYN to look at the genetic basis of fetal anomalies, uh, all the way through to uh, looking at uh, presentations uh, that occur primarily uh, late in life, um, such as uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or or ALS. And one of the themes that we've seen in these studies um, is that strong genetic contributions of the sort that are really most informative about biology and and I would argue most relevant to know about clinically, uh, those kinds of genetic contributions really show up more broadly uh, than a lot of people were expecting.
0: So you feel that sequencing or some version of genetic testing is more successful in diagnostic settings Across specialties than you anticipated or than other people anticipated,
1: yes, I think that that uh, what I would characterize as sort of traditional genetic diagnostics where you look at the genome of a patient and find a genotype that makes a very strong contribution or is causal in fact of disease uh, for many years it's been recognized that that happens quite frequently in for example. Uh, Severe presentations of childhood Uh, But I think most people uh, Myself included some years ago uh, would not expect a High rate of those kinds of underlying genetic diagnoses in for example uh, Adult onset chronic kidney disease not that they wouldn't be there at all, but that they wouldn't be too 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 common Uh, but in reality uh, when we look at adult onset chronic kidney disease, and this is a study uh, that we did in collaboration uh, with uh, Ali Garabi and others in medicine at Columbia, we found that uh, around one in 10 individuals with an adult onset chronic kidney disease have a very clear uh, Mendelian cause of their chronic kidney disease that you can identify in looking through their, their genome. And, and what this suggests to me is that we're not as good at recognizing clinically as we might have thought, uh, which individuals have these simpler genetic conditions. So really the way to think of some of these uh, clinical diagnoses is really as representing a heterogeneous mix of patients, some of whom have a very complex underlying genetic architecture predisposing them to disease and in interaction with the environment as we would often traditionally think of for common complex disease. But a proportion of them, and we don't know which often until we look at the genomes, actually have some kind of simple Mendelian disease we just didn't recognize.
0: It's really interesting to me because that 1 in 10 is jumping out at me as being very similar to the number that it turned out of patients in breast cancer who had an underlying genetic condition. And remembering back to the days before BRCA1 and 2 were identified, when people, i.e. Mary Claire King, first started talking about there being a Mendelian form of breast cancer, people were like, that is absurd. And now it's, you know, of course. And I think what what you're saying is reminding me is that we're always at that point of like, God, we were so silly. Remember how silly we were a few years ago when we thought we knew these things. And now we of course know, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think what
1: we're seeing is that there is that is that it's all more complex than we thought. So even, even what we thought in terms of distinctions in terms of the architecture didn't work out so neatly as we imagined it, where we could imagine that there's this, relatively straightforward, simple architecture uh, that characterizes what we came to call the Mendelian diseases, and then a very different architecture where there's lots and lots of genes involved, each of them having variants that have a very small impact on risk and most of common complex diseases like that. Well, it turns out that that kind of simple division is absolutely now clearly inaccurate and that there are quite a number of these common complex diseases that themselves break down into diseases with very different underlying genetic architectures.
0: (laughs) You know, I've always said that if I ever wrote a textbook about genetics, it was going to be called, it turned out to be more complicated than we thought. Right, (laughs) precisely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So no, but you bring me to something very interesting, because actually, the first time that I remember hearing your name was a very influential article that I think of, I don't know if it was actually called that, as the Emperor Has No Clothes article, where you were writing about genome-wide association studies in what, 2007 maybe?
1: I um, think that's probably 2009. Oh, maybe, okay.
0: So I'll give you a little bit even more on top of it than yep. I thought. So there's a period of time when people were sinking so much money into GWAS and everything was GWAS and there was just one published after another and everyone was just so sure that this was going to unravel the genetic secrets of common complex disease. And forgive me if I over paraphrase, but you wrote something saying like, this isn't working and no one is admitting it, right? Like that was not, not a popular opinion at the moment.
1: It was certainly not a popular opinion at the time. And I, and I think it is fair to say that uh, uh, my argument was that it wasn't working. Uh, the reason I made that argument actually, though, was not quite the way I was caricatured. So I should probably explain the reason I made, made that argument. But I should also maybe point out first that I actually wasn't always negative about the prospects for GWAS. I actually started out quite enthusiastic about it. Um, And I was in the camp that believed that common variants in the human genome would sometimes have relatively important impacts on risk for common disease. I thought that's the way it was going to turn out. And because of that, uh, I was an enthusiastic early supporter uh, of the idea of performing genome-wide association studies, which at their core... Are, simply represented an effort to systematically characterize common variation in the human genome and relate that common variation to risk of disease. And should maybe here clarify that by common, uh, traditionally, what we're, we were talking about is uh, a variant in the genome that has an allele frequency of around about 5%. Now, in fact, more recent Or greater GWAS can can or greater Uh, more recent GWAS can go below that uh, threshold reliably. But that's what it it was when I was uh, writing at at the time. Mm -hmm. So I started out uh, supportive and, in fact, uh, had some arguments with some very prominent people, including Sidney Brenner, that were very negative about the prospects. And I'll come back to why that's relevant in a minute. I started out very supportive. Um, But then I was simply stunned by the first set of studies that came out where I felt that the effect sizes that were being identified were dramatically smaller than we were all expecting. And I was really surprised that people weren't saying, wait a minute, why are these effect sizes so small? And I was further surprised that an awful lot of people were arguing that the small effect sizes didn't matter. And the fundamental argument that was being made about why the small effect sizes didn't matter uh, is accurate, actually, as far as that argument goes. The fundamental argument is to emphasize what's really happening, which is that you're using standing genetic variation to implicate a gene as relevant to risk of disease. And that standing genetic variation might have just a tiny effect on risk, but if you then bring the sledgehammer of a pharmacological agent to bear upon that gene that's been implicated, you might be able to liberate a much bigger effect of the gene than the common variant shows. is actually a completely reasonable argument. But that very reasonable argument, in fact, only works if GWAS implicates a small number of genes, because then you can say, we've run a bunch of GWAS studies, there are now 10 genes that have common variants. Now, we admit that these common variant effects are embarrassingly small, but at least we have these 10 genes, and you can now go and work on them and try to modulate them pharmacologically in order to have a bigger effect on the the gene product than the common variant has. All completely reasonable. The problem is, and this is where I, I really came out against GWAS strongly. The problem is from the very early papers, I was able to see that if you looked at the distribution of effect sizes that had been identified, and you asked how many variants like that you would need in order to explain most of the heritability of the diseases and traits that were being studied. It was perfectly clear that you would need variants distributed through the entire genome. And that's actually when I turned on GWAS. And the, the, the most controversial commentary I wrote uh, was essentially arguing that GWAS effect sizes are so small um, that you need to have tens or hundreds of thousands of variants in order to explain heritability, meaning that eventually, when GWAS have been performed in ever-larger numbers, they'd end up implicating most of the genome. And in pointing at everything, genetics would end up pointing at nothing. And what we'd be able to say from these studies to dr- our drug development colleagues is, hey, folks, the target that you should work on for the disease you're interested in is in the human genome. And that's not helpful that's not guidance. Nice. So, um, so that was really the argument that I made. Um, and then I just really let it sit for a while while I turned to focusing on rare variation. But you know, it's very interesting that Just about a decade later, uh, Jonathan Pritchard came out with the omnigenic model, uh, which was a much more careful analysis than I did, of looking at the results of genome-wide association studies. Um, And he showed really quite clearly uh, that for most traits, GWAS does indeed implicate most of the genome.
0: So obviously we have a whole new um, genre of tests based on... Sort of the the decade later versions of uh, GWAS on, with with many many more genomes and many many more spots in the genome. What do you what are your thoughts on the polygenic scoring and the current GWAS? Are you come around to them again? Are you?
1: Well, you know it depends what you're trying to do. So. I feel and I, you know, and I think that we've all wasted enough energy on the so-called GWAS war. So I I definitely don't want to restart any of those. But I feel that it's relatively clear, indeed, from that early work that that I had done and and Jonathan's more careful, more recent work. I think it's really relatively clear that for most traits, GWAS does not provide guidance uh, about underlying disease biology or about how to prioritize targets in the genome for drug development. And those certainly were things that people were hoping to get out of GWAS early on. And I believe in being upfront and saying, well, that's right, really, right. really really not how it turned out. Right. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, it is certainly the case uh, that Polygenic risk scores are informative about risk. Uh, there is, I mean, the, the statistical genetics is perfectly clear. Uh, there are certainly challenges in using them. Uh, for example, one challenge that concerns me a lot is one that uh, Mark Daly and his colleagues highlighted, that the scores in their current form uh, really are not reliably portable across individuals from different genetic ancestries, and that's a, that's a major, major concern. Uh, but with some concerns like that noted, uh, certainly these polygenic risk scores based upon GWAS data are informative, and I expect them to actually be usable in a variety of settings, some of which haven't even been much discussed, but just to, as one illustration, I would <coughs> uh, consider them to be a quite important to clinical trial design because if you think about it, uh, it's clear that those with high polygenic risk scores for some disease areas will have different event rates and then that will then influence the number of individuals you need for clinical trials. So I think it is clear that there is valuable information but it's also clear that we can't do some of the things we had hoped to do with the results of GWAS precisely because too much of the genome is implicated
0: great right. so so if you're keeping us uh, focus as as you have uh, on translational work, the rare disease the diagnostic power of rare of rare genes uh, is a better bet for influencing medical management um, and I wanted to ask you about that because. So, the numbers that I understand if you're looking at sort of a fruitful area for using exome for a diagnosis, maybe in pediatrics, as you said, with something that looks genetic, my understanding is the numbers the the amount the percentage of the time people tend to get a, a diagnostic result' about thirty percent. Is that still a fair number in your estimation
1: yeah the the, the rate of 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 a relatively clear cut genetic diagnosis uh does vary quite quite a bit, uh, uh, influenced by a variety of factors. Um, but probably for many pediatric settings, something around a quarter or a third is, is, is reasonable. Uh, for some forms of epilepsy, it can go up, you know, quite a bit higher than that. And in some specific areas, it can go up higher, but- And
0: obviously- it depends on what your cohort is, right? Like, you know, what, how how genetic it looks and so on. I, I, obviously, you you can dilute that with people who aren't going to have a genetic finding and so on. But.
1: Absolutely right. But overall, yes, I think it's fair to say that something around a quarter or, or a third is reasonable for pediatric presentations. And, and it is also noteworthy that no matter how you select, you usually don't do a lot better than 50 or 60%.
0: And, and how we, much of that, do you have a number in your head? What percentage of that actually then goes on to affect medical management?
1: Right. So, you know, I think that to back up just very briefly, I, you know, I, I do think that it's clear that in terms of getting information from genetics, that's relevant to the management right now for an individual patient, the medical management, or getting information that is, uh, relevant to the biology of the disease, it is true that these higher-impact variants are a much better starting point than lots and lots of, 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 of modest effect common variants. So I think that is that is a, a clear-cut distinction that's important to, um, to keep in mind. Uh, and just to close the loop on the past discussion, um, as this started becoming more clear, Uh, I was at a meeting with Sydney Brenner, who I had had this argument with many years ago where I was saying that there would be lots and lots of positive things that came out of GWAS and, you know, folks like you that, you know, uh, are Nobel laureates, but don't know anything about population genetics should really stick to what you know. (laughs) And, um, and then, uh, Years and years after that, after I had become known for expressing concerns about GWAS, I was at a meeting where he introduced me as, um, and you remember, this is not someone who's remembered for being one of the nicest people in all settings, but he introduced <laughs> me as someone who is one of the few genomicists who's willing to express concerns about what's coming out of GWAS and what's possible with other genetic approaches or something like that. And, uh, and then I said to the group, "Well." thank you for that, but you don't remember in London when you expressed exactly the views that I'm now expressing and I told you you didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> and he uh, he turned and smiled and said, oh, I remember very well. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it was very, 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 very nice of him. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. But in any That's event, nice answer, to, to answer your question.
0: Because um, I think, David, stick to what you know should not be your motto.
1: Right. Really. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. So to answer to now to answer your your question, you know, the good news is that we are uh, getting very good at genetic diagnostics. And I think we should really celebrate that um, and really feel very proud as a community that we've been able to advance the genetics and the interpretation of genomes to that degree where a, a really impressive proportion of patients when their genomes are investigated, have a a clear-cut explanation of their diseases. And and being able to tell patients and families, as I know you know very, very well, why an individual has a serious disease is a very important thing to be able to do. So I think we really do need to emphasize that that's important uh, before we get to any transformation in the patient's care because of the finding. So that's the good news. Uh, The less good news is that we really do have to admit that the majority, and in fact, the clear majority uh, of genetic diagnoses that we arrive at through exome sequencing, for example, do not have a transformational change on the patient's management. Now, this can be a little bit confusing in the literature because you can find papers where people say, we looked at the application of exome sequencing and all of the genetic diagnoses, and we found that 75% of the time or 80% of the time, medical management was affected. Well, you can come to those conclusions if you are extremely liberal with the interpretation of what a change really is. But if you're not liberal about what a change in the management is, you're asking about important changes that really affect how well you can treat the patient's disease, the reality is that is a very small proportion of the outcomes. And you can actually see that this has to be the case if you just think about what we're really doing. When we start with a patient, and we don't know what they have, and we sequence the exome or genome of the patient in my institute or wherever it might happen, and we come back with an answer, what we're doing is we're starting with a patient where we don't know what they have, and then we are lining them up with one of the 4,000-odd genes that we already know about that cause Mendelian disease. That's what we're doing. So if we simply start with those 4,000-odd genes that cause Mendelian diseases and ask, how many of them can we really effectively treat right now, today? The answer is somewhere in the tens. And so it's perfectly clear that for the moment, when we get a clear-cut genetic diagnosis, there might be some impact on management. We might be able to say, for this Uh, For this cause of disease, it's better to start with treatment A than treatment B, although both of them would have eventually been tried. We might have modest impacts on management, but in the majority of cases, the impacts will be modest, not transformational.
0: Right. So you're saying is a couple of things that you're saying here is is that it's structural. It's structural in the situation we're in right now, that there's limitations on how much we can use this information to affect Medical management. And I think actually you're being kind because the, I have met a few people who've tried to tell me that uh, it affected medical management in 75 or 80% of the cases. But in every case, those people were extraordinarily financially conflicted and selling something based on the idea.
1: Yeah, I can't, I can't comment on that because I haven't looked at, at that myself. But, yeah. but I, I do think it's fair to say that when those claims have been high, the rates have been high. Uh, at a minimum, it's fair to say that the interpretation of a change on medical management was liberal. And I'd actually like to just to make clear what I mean by that, to just make more clear what I mean by that. I'll give one really clear example that illustrates that. So one really uh, a clear cause of epileptic encephalopathy is mutations in a gene called SCN8A. And this is a gene that encodes a sodium channel. And the mutations in this gene that cause an epileptic encephalopathy are known by and large to be activating mutations. So you could start with a patient with epilepsy and sequence the patient and find that they have SCN8A, an SCN8A activating de novo mutation, and then say that you should try a sodium channel blocker in that patient. Now, that's all completely reasonable, and it's not unreasonable to say that that is an impact on medical management because the genetics has suggested a sodium channel blocker. It is also true, however, (laughs) that any patient that has uncontrolled seizures is going to end up getting trialed on a sodium channel blocker. So it's difficult to argue that that kind of outcome is a transformational change because of the genetics. So there are those kinds of examples where medical management is, impact is, 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 is modest. Now From my own reading, even if we counted those kinds of modest things, we would not get anywhere near 75 or 80 percent of the time having an impact on management.
0: Right. At least not yet and not. and and i think you know uh so there's the, the, the i know you were very involved and i'm not going to recount the whole story cuz i think it's a familiar story to a lot of people but also it's sort of long but uh, you were very involved in the diagnosis of matt mite's child and he's become a big advocate he's a he's a person whose own child was diagnosed with a genetic condition and who um went out and found other children with what was then an unknown condition um or other people, not necessarily children, with then an unknown condition and created a community around that and has been a very big advocate for the fact that there may be benefits to people that go beyond medical management in terms of creating communities around diseases and conditions where people can swap information. And they may even be medically significant these communities. Um, So not to downplay the other possible benefits, right? Like,
1: Without a doubt. I mean, I think that um, two comments there. First is that simply knowing is important. And although I'm not a medical doctor, my sense is simply knowing is practicing good medicine. Uh, In every context I've been in, it's been clear that knowing is of value to patients and families end and of itself. So this is a good thing that we are doing, even if the proportion of times that we can really transform the care of patients is limited. Um, and I do want to say, though, that limited is not zero. I mean, there, there are examples where the genetics is responsible for an out and out transformation in, in patients' care. And that's a, a reason to do these kinds of studies. So th- there, there are, uh, these kinds of real examples of precision medicine that happen. It's just that they're not, they're not. Right, they're not
0: and they're great. There's there, there, they're wonderful. There are wonderful stories of transformational events and we all live for them. Right. So, so let me, let me let that lead into, to one more, one more question in this area. And uh, it would be my least favorite question were I on your side of it, because I hate to be asked what's going to happen in the future because it's sort of a bullshit job, right? Like future predictions, but but I'm going to ask you anyway, um, so five years, 10 years, how much do you think the sort of genomics you're doing now changes medicine in the next decade? Assuming we have a next decade, just let me put that out there. Yeah, so I
1: think by and large, um, m- most human geneticists that have offered predictions of the future have gotten it <laughs> – Wrong.
0: Yeah, comes uh, come to bad in, ends. It's
1: entirely true. in terms of timing, I think most of what a lot of people have been arguing would happen. Uh, happens eventually but the timing is just dramatically off. Yeah,
0: yeah, maybe 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 David, but maybe it's like safe now. Maybe I should ask you like how many human genes do you think there are, you know? <laughs> right, so the classic right. questions that people got really really wrong. <laughs> ask them now. But no, I'm going to be obnoxious and say like so
1: so my 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 sense overall is that um genomics will make incremental contributions across a broad range of different therapeutic areas, but that they will be incremental and hard won. And the, and the, the reason that I say that is that um, it really just does take a long time to learn how to effectively treat um genetic conditions. And of course, you can say that we're getting better and better and better at it, and it's not going to be uh, a generation or two like it was for cystic fibrosis uh, between the discovery of the gene and you know highly targeted and effective treatments. Uh, but I don't think that things have changed so much that we can move quickly from genetic diseases to treatments, and I think that is the fundamental reason that progress will be uh, incremental. That is not to say that there will not be progress. There absolutely will be, and that is important, but I think it's equally important that we are clear that we're not going to be in a situation where three years from now, We've got effective treatments for 500 to 1,000 of those 4,000 disease-causing genes that we don't have today. It just is not going to go that fast. And when you look at it that way, I do think it means that progress will be relatively incremental. Now, all that said, the one thing I'll say on the positive side is that, by and large, the way that we're treating these diseases now is thinking of them as isolated genetic diseases. Some exceptions to this, but by and large. So we mentioned uh, Matt and his family. So there the mutations are in a gene called NGLY1. So what do you need to do for NGLY1? Mentioned SCN8A, that's a sodium channel. What do you need to do for activating sodium channel mutations? By and large, that's how we're going after uh, treatment options, and I actually do see a future where we'll be able to group genes into categories and think about treatment paradigms for those groups of genes as categories, and we've actually been doing a little bit of work in that direction ourselves already, working on genes that we consider to have primarily gene expression effects. So these would be things like transcription factors that cause uh, neurodevelopmental diseases or RNA binding proteins that cause neurodevelopmental diseases. And instead of there being a protein that's misbehaving, like an ion channel uh, that is not mediating the right amount of current, uh, instead, these genetic alterations – perturb the expression of hundreds of genes. And so you can think of these diseases as as diseases of the transcriptome. And you can think of a category of approach to treat these diseases that's focused on restoration of the more normal transcriptome. So we're trying to think of those as kind of a category. It's just one illustration. Mm-hmm. But I think the hope is that eventually we'll be able to work on genes more as groups where multiple genes and the same pathway that influence risk of disease and this is where progress will then be a little bit faster Mm -hmm. but overall precision medicine approaches you know what i try to do for a a living right now are fundamentally limited by the very limited number of highly effective treatments we have for genetically mediated conditions
0: that's really interesting i've never i've never heard that Phrased exactly that way. I mean you sort of think of of you know, trying to take something like categories of mental illness and turn them into something that makes more sense in relationship to their underpinnings, their biological underpinnings and thinking of them as spectrums and so on. But I rarely hear that expressed in other fields. It's really interesting to me. So David, I have a question. You know, I was looking through your just browsing through your biography before this and uh you went to school in Stanford. You worked in the UK. You worked in North Carolina at, at Duke before here. Are you, are you a New Yorker originally? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I have to work out why this happens. But
1: just about everybody assumes that I'm originally a New Yorker. Because uh,
0: you seem like a New Yorker. Right.
1: <laughs> I, I think overall, my response to that is thank you. Uh, yeah. However, uh, I'm actually from Southern California originally. So yeah, I grew up on, on the beach in Laguna,
0: yeah, we're, yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's a smart move of you. Um, so let me ask you something, because I feel very sentimental about my beloved home city right now, my hometown, which is which is New York. And um, you've worked and studied in all these other places. So coming here, how does New York compare? Like, what is it like to be a transplant here? Uh,
1: New York is, is, is a fantastic place to be. And I mean, I think uh, people listening won't need to hear that from me. But what I I really like about New York is the, really the sense of feeling connected to what humanity is, is up to. Uh, I've lived in a lot of places and I've liked um, lots of things about lots of places. And I'm a scuba diver, so I love being on the Pacific Ocean. But what I particularly like about, about New York is that it just really feels tied in its history and, and how it works presently. It It really feels tied to to what humans are doing, what they have been doing, what they're going to do next. And it's really exciting to feel a part of that. And you really do often viscerally feel that in New York. And and that's really the thing I like the most about
0: it. Yeah, people people think, like, I know New Yorkers can be brusque, which may be. I'm not saying anything about you here, David, but it may be why people think you are natively (laughs) from New York. But it's like, we're just in a little bit of a hurry, is the way I look at it. But because our heart's in the right place, we're just in a hurry. Like we have things to do here. It's a strange place to be right now, um, because but you're you know it's it's sort of um, nodes of great activity uh, and franticness, and then sort of a deathly quiet in other parts of the city. So I was want to ask you um, as it seems to be you know so much absorption of this moment, what your role is, you know, what is it doing genomics in a pandemic? Like, um, do we have anything to add? What are you, what, what, how has that affected your work?
1: Well, one thing that's been nice to see is the extent to which really everyone uh, that I've had any exposure to um, that can help in any way uh, has tried to help. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really uh, been really heartwarming for me to see how people have reacted and and I see that everywhere. I see that at work and, and I see it even, um, you know, just in my own community here about how people try so hard to express friendliness while still keeping the appropriate amount of physical distance between you and them. And, and, and
0: (laughs) everywhere with one glaring exception, everywhere with one glaring goddamn exception, people are coming together, but yes, I, I get very you're a big picture guy, right? I get very angry because I, you look at New York and we have so much resources and the country has so much resources. There's so much money and there's so much, you know, um, and and we've squandered uh, above all the expertise that we have here.
1: I mean, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to stay positive and, and, you know, take the view. And I really do think it's true that uh you know, we really are in the process of of turning a corner and 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 that is in part because of the extent to which people really have come together and try and have tried to do something constructive. Uh, on the science side, you know where I have the the, the most exposure, I think it's really been stunning uh, the extent to which, the scientific community has been able to marshal its energy, um, resources, and attention on one defined set of problems so quickly. I, you know, I haven't seen anyone try to actually perform any calculations on this, but my sense is, and this is an interesting thing, that this must be the single biggest, quickest shift in science attention in the history of humanity over this exact period we're in.
0: That's uh, amazing.
1: Every lab that I know of, almost every lab that I know of, has figured out ways to engage and, and contribute. And that, I would say, actually more than any single thing is what gives me real, not even optimism, outright certainty. Uh, the global science community is absolutely going to help in the months ahead and help a lot. And that will come in the form of everything you can imagine, Uh, the best ways to think about uh, mitigation, uh, the development of treatments that are helpful in a variety of different circumstances for individuals with different kinds of pre-existing conditions, Eventually, eventually a, a, a vaccine. So so my overall reaction has been to to really feel that this has been in most ways a, a moment for us all to show that we care and want to contribute. And that is absolutely what's happening in the science community. Um, in my own group, um, we we remain a, a, a genomics research group. So we're doing lots of um, other kinds of science beyond uh, COVID-related. And I, and I think that's important. I think the overall science enterprise absolutely, you know, should and will go on. Uh, but we have also uh, tried to see where we can contribute something useful specifically for, for COVID-19. And we try to stay away where we have, you know, no expertise to contribute, but where we can contribute something, we've tried to engage. And that's, that's taken two forms so far. One is that it actually relates back to something I was mentioning earlier. Uh, We've been working for some time in the institute to try to find ways to change the expression of important disease genes. The basic idea here is if you have, for example, a gene that causes disease because of mutations that reduce the activity of that gene, well, if you could find some way to regulate that gene so you can increase its activity, that would represent a direct treatment option for the disease. And uh, a postdoc in, in the group, uh, Xinjiang Wang, has been working for a long time, setting up a framework to be able to identify these kinds of regulators. And then when the, it became clear that the pandemic was going to pose a real threat, he was able to quickly turn this paradigm around. And use it to try to identify compounds that strongly regulate the expression of host proteins that the virus needs to get in. And in doing that, he found really some quite dramatic results um, that um, we now think will will inform uh, clinical trials that should um, run relatively soon, where these results suggest ways to strongly downregulate um, a a key protein mediating uh, viral entry.
0: And this so, would this would be with the goal of people uh, decreasing the number of people who get sick or decreasing symptoms?
1: So right now we're thinking about this as a treatment for uh, patients that are infected. So this would be a treatment for COVID-19 as opposed to something prophylactic to avoid infection in the first place. And the, the protein that we've focused the most attention on, although the analyses we've applied in fact to a large number of, of potentially relevant host proteins, the one that we focused the most attention on is called Tempris2. This is a, a protein that actually primes or, or processes viral uh, surface proteins in a way to allow the virus to get close enough to the membrane of host cells to actually infect. And if you don't have enough of this particular host protein, TEMPRS2, then the virus either can't infect or can't can't get as widely distributed in the body. And so we think that as long as you can reduce the expression of this protein sufficiently early enough in, in infection, uh, that it should, in fact, uh, help with uh, dis- disease course from there. And so that's now something that we want to see tested clinically, and we think it 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 will be. And the.
0: Have you. The wait, other for, thing, one sorry about that. So there's a lot of talk about lowering the, the barriers that would normally make developing therapeutics like that both slow and expensive. Um, have you found, like, are, are there you know, in view of the pandemic? Are there lowered barriers to make it easier to get in there to do clinical tests? Are there sources of funding being thrown at this sorts of things? What's your experience with the world?
1: It's certainly all moving faster than it would normally move in everything that I've had any exposure to or heard about in in all ways in terms of how quick you can, how quickly you can do the science. I mean, it's interesting, you know, when we decided to write up a paper on these analyses I described, uh, You know, several people working on it. um, You know, put up a Google Doc and all wrote it simultaneously in about 36 hours. We just all did it right away, Uh, and that that is kind of the way everyone is approaching this. And so everything is moving faster. I think that's entirely appropriate, but I would just emphasize that moving faster um, really should not mean moving recklessly. And whenever we get to testing things clinically. Uh, even though we need to move fast and I'm all for moving fast, we absolutely still need to move carefully. Um, And there are all sorts of reasons why it's very, very easy to get the wrong idea about how treatments are working. And COVID-19 is a particularly challenging problem because it's got a wildly variable natural history before you intervene and everybody who knows anything about testing things clinically knows that that presents a real challenge in interpretation so it's really hard outside of appropriate controlled trials to know whether anything is hel- helping or not and so
0: right there are a I, lot of there are a lot of endpoints there
1: are a lot of endpoints and there's just a lot of variability so i'm all for moving fast But I do want to caveat that that by saying that we have to move very, very carefully and we have to be in particular careful about not using anecdotal information about whether something works to guide how we treat patients or even to guide exactly what trials we need to do. We still need to be careful about exactly what trials to do and make sure that they are well motivated, even though we need to move quickly.
0: And I interrupted you. You said there was a second thing, the and of course I couldn't second, agree more with what you said. I mean, thank you. It's a great message.
1: The second area of work is is really just doing what we always do, and that is, you know, being a geneticist for hire, as I indicated earlier. <laughs> and certainly, there are uh, very clear questions uh, uh, about possible host genetic contributions that absolutely need to be investigated. And many, many investigators throughout the world are and will be working on this now. Uh, And that very much includes us. Uh, So uh, Columbia and New York Presbyterian together are uh, enrolling patients that wish to be enrolled in host genetic studies for COVID-19. We will be sequencing the exomes and genomes of, of those individuals and looking for differences in their genomes that influence uh, whether they're susceptible, susceptible to infection in the first place and influence the severity of their disease course uh, if they are infected. And of course, we know from examples of, of other pathogens that sometimes there are host effects that are directly informative uh, about treatment directions Um, and also informative about best treatments to use. And so because of that um, history with other pathogens, it's very clear that doing this host genomic work as quickly as possible is a very high priority.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have like a mixed set of feelings about this because yes, as a geneticist, I'm like, it's super interesting. It's very important. It can tell us so much about, you know, what the disease is doing and also possibly be helpful. Um, and as a, you know, I've got a little side gig as a bioethicist. And one of the things I really like about David is the the, the second time we met, he told me uh, a conversation that he's not interested in ethics. And and I, I liked that because the way I interpreted what he was saying was, I am interested in ethics, really, but I don't want to talk about it. So um, <laughs> the ethics of that, uh, I... I hope it's used the right way. I think it's so valuable and you can't not do it. But I worry because when you take a step back from COVID, uh, and these two things are not at all mutually exclusive, not in the least. When you take a step back, you know that the big influencer of different outcomes from people who get sick, I'm not saying who gets sick maybe, but different outcomes, has to do with uh, underlying health and access to good medical care and all sorts of societal things. And um, it's telling us so much about weaknesses in the way that we treat people in this country uh, and the medical care that they get. And I'm a little nervous that people will fixate on the genetic differences. And um, it's a phenomenon, I called it gene washing, where it's like it washes everything else away and suddenly those other things get ignored and they hope that doesn't happen. So that makes me, these these studies, it's sort of like I've mixed feelings about them. They're like, so yes, they're obviously the right thing to do. And then there's a part of me that's like, oh no, this is what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. So it's it's interesting that you brought up that comment I made. And, and uh, e- even though I'm not sure that I was anticipating that you were going to publicize it when I made the comment. But
0: <laughs> I'm, say I'm, that I didn't think you meant it? <laughs> I know.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad that you did because I I I do think the concerns that you're raising are are reasonable concerns. We absolutely do not want uh, to perform genetic studies that would end up leaving people with the impression. Well, now we found some genetic causes, and there is nothing else happening. Uh, that would be clearly counterproductive. I think the way that I've always viewed things like this, however, is that the more that we can find out that is accurate, the, the better off we are. And as as far as I can tell, uh, it's a certainty that there are very many uh, environmental factors contributing and pre-existing factors contributing to outcome that will absolutely not be explained by the genetic studies that we are about to run. That just is something that just simply would not be possible to happen based on everything that we know about genetics. That said, that still leaves room for the possibility that there are genetic differences that do have some influence uh, perhaps for some subset of patients that would be informative. And I so I, I take the view that if that's the case, we need to know about it. But we just need to be pretty careful about how we describe it so it doesn't end up being misleading in the way that you're concerned about.
0: Yes, well, I think that uh if I'm going to draw the moral from that story, it's that this is uh, chronically true in genetics, right, that the communication piece has to go along with all the other science pieces. Um, That's absolutely right,
1: and I would even add to that um, the concern that, Genetics is one of those areas that has a tendency, a systematic tendency, to be misrepresented for whatever reason. Now, you know, I'm not an astrophysicist, so I can't tell when the press writes about astrophysics how often they're wrong. Uh, But I think that there's a lot that's written about genetics that's at a minimum misleading. And so this is certainly something to keep a close eye on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're, we're towards the end of our time, maybe a little bit over, but this has been a great conversation. David, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And also for the little private therapy session that got mixed into that, uh, discussion. And I, I do feel a little bit better in case you were wondering.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted to hear it. I do, too. Laura, it's been great talking to you. Thank you.
0: All right. Bye, and thank you all for listening. Please uh, go to my website, follow us at uh, The Beagle Landed, and follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher. Take care, everybody. Stay well, stay safe, stay, stay sane. Goodbye. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is invite.